Hello and welcome to Filling the Sink, a podcast from Catalan News. My name's Lorcan Doherty and today we're talking about Indians. Not people from India, not indigenous Americans, not Indians, but Indians. Catalan merchants who sailed to the Americas to make their fortunes before returning home to their native land to enjoy their riches. They left a hugely significant legacy that touched all aspects of Catalan life. Business, think Bacardi rum, architecture, Gaudí's main patron was the son of an Indian, and as we'll hear a little bit later on today, music too. Abaneras. But that legacy is also being re-examined today, given that the enormous wealth of the Indians came at the expense of enormous suffering of exploited and enslaved indigenous people and Africans. To chat about all of that and more, I'm joined today by Gerard Escatchfolk. Hi, Gerard. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And you've been a busy bee, haven't you? Up in the Costa yeah. Brava, visiting all these lovely towns, Bagur. Yeah, but it was all in the name of work, of oh, course. Of course, of course. Well, we, we'll be hearing how you got on uh, very shortly. Uh, first, though, why don't you just tell us who are we talking about when we talk about Indians? Well, Indians is the word in Catalan. People also know them as Indianos in Spanish, Americanos, but it doesn't have an English translation. Yeah, and it's one India and two Indians, isn't it? So that's how we're going to refer to them today, just using the Catalan word, because, yeah, there isn't one in English. <laughs> and Indians are those Catalans, also some Spaniards, that traveled to the Americas or West Indies, as they were known at the time, and they traded and earned money and came back. And what kind of era are we talking about? Well, we are talking about the late 18th century and during the 19th century here, so quite a long period. Okay, so uh, 1700s, 1800s. And I mean, you know, thinking about it as well, we're talking about these merchants who sailed across the Atlantic. You might be thinking, okay, yeah, we're talking about the era of Christopher Columbus, but actually we are closer to the era of the Indians than they are to Columbus, whose first voyage to America was in 1492. Of course, he thought that he had landed in India, hence Indians. And what kind of people were these Indians who set sail? Well, it was mainly poor and young people. Okay. That's all. So, but, <laughs> simply, so, but yeah, I suppose people looking to earn their fortune, looking to... Exactly. They wanted to go to the new continent to see if there was any work opportunities for them or any ways of like moving and trading the products from Catalonia or anywhere in Spain with the Spanish colonies. Okay. And so this is what they were, they were merchants, they were traders. And, you know, they had a big influence back in Catalonia. It's not like, okay, they, they set sail for the new world and set up home there and that was it. No, they, they, no, they brought that, stuff back exactly. and had a big that's, influence here. That's one of the important things about Indians is that they left, but they returned home. They already knew that they were going to like return home only if successful because some Indians didn't earn money or like some others reached Cadiz in southern Spain. And when they saw the sea, they said, <laughs> uh, I'm going to go back home. <laughs> this but... isn't for me. <laughs> see, exactly. So it's Indians that went to the Americas or to the West Indies and returned after being successful there. And, and you can see, I mean, we're going to hear that, you know, some of the towns that you, you visited recently, but you can actually visibly see the impact that they had in mm -hmm. the kind of houses and architecture. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And they're like huge colonial era houses with gardens by the sea 
not only in Barcelona, but also the vast majority are in the coast of Catalonia, from Costa Brava to Villanova, in the southern, the southern town of Villanova y la Geltrú, or Sitges, which is also an important Indian town, mm-hmm. and inland Catalonia. Yeah, for example, in Lleida and you know, people returned and they set up factories here. You know, we're talking about this as a time of the Industrial Revolution too. And in fact, that Industrial Revolution was one of the key moments for Indians because one of the Indians that went to Cuba, when he returned back, he saw a business opportunity and built the first train line in Spain because he took part in building the first train line in Cuba. So he already knew how it worked and everything. So they built the first train line in Spain, and it was in the Maresma coastline, so a little bit north of Barcelona. Okay. Well, let's hear now from a couple of people you've been speaking to over the last week or two, Gerard. Martin Rodrigo, a contemporary history professor at Pompeo Fabra University in Barcelona. And first, Ana Castebi, coordinator of the Xarxa de Municipis Indians, or Network of Indians Towns. Begur, where we are today, Anna tells me, was a town of 2,000 inhabitants. At the end of the 18th and start of the 19th century, 500 young people left to travel to the Americas. I met with Anna Castebi in the seaside town of Begur on the Costa Brava. It is one of the most famous Indian towns in Catalonia. The views are astonishing, down to the Mediterranean Sea. What are the characteristics of an Indian's house, Anna asks? Well, a porch to give off these colonial airs. A porch with paintings of their adventures overseas. Always landscape paintings, where you can see the sea, she says, pointing out some examples in the town. The Indians did not only bring new architectural styles to Catalonia upon returning home. Some new traditions they picked up changed the social habits of Catalans. They brought with them the sobra taula, literally at the table, basically enjoying a chat and a tipple after lunch. This tradition of coffee, alcoholic drinks and cigars came with the Indians, and explains. We did not have coffee, rum or tobacco here before. When we talk about Indians, people tend to imagine a man, but women were important figures in the community at the time too. Yes, they were dependent on their husbands, but they also sought to use their wealth as a force for good. Donas Indianas, the wife of Indians, and mothers, Anna says, had a key role in developing philanthropy and charity work throughout Catalonia. But while there were undoubtedly good deeds done, Indians also have a dark past. Martin Rodrigo, professor of contemporary history at Barcelona's Pompeu Fabra University. The date of the abolition of slavery was different depending on the territory, Martin explains. In peninsular Spain and the Balearic and Canary Islands, it was in 1837, while in Puerto Rico, abolition was in 1873, and in Cuba, 1886. Spain, in fact, was the last European country to abolish slavery in its colonies, just two years ahead of Brazil, the final country in the Americas to do so. Despite the fact that from 1821 the slave trade was at law, between that year and 1867 almost 600,000 captive Africans were brought to Cuba alone, Martin says. This is quite a significant number, he points out. Around 1,500 slave ships crossed the ocean, each one with a captain and crew. 
But talking about Indians and slavery, Martin Rodrigo in Barcelona and Ana Castelli in Begur both tell me the exact same sentence. Bueno, clar, eh, no tots els indians eren negres. Ni tots els esclavistes eren indians. És a dir, not all Indians were slave traders and not all slave traders were Indians. Alguns indians eren esclavistes, com alguns homes... Well, slavery is part of the Indians' story then. Its history is broader than that. Slavery was not invented by Indians, Anna says. It already existed in Barcelona in the Middle Ages. And unfortunately, she says, it continues to exist even today. Our thanks to Anna and Martin. Uh, beautiful, Begu, I have to say. I was there maybe five years ago or something. Oh, it's a beautiful it's town, if you don't know it. It's a beautiful seaside town, like the... And I went during the week, so it was even nicer. It's nice and quiet. It was quiet. Yeah, yeah. I want to mention a website. It's municipisindians.cat. We'll put it in the show notes, municipisindians.cat. And it is a really brilliant resource. It's run by the network that Anna works for. It has loads of information about not just Begur, but loads of towns along the coast. And they do tours as well of... Uh, the heritage sites, the buildings, uh, the interest in architecture to do with this uh, Indian heritage. Gerard, we heard Martin and Anna both talk about slavery too, and we can't tell a story of the Indians without talking about the slave trade. Yeah, exactly. In fact, a lot of Indians had a lot of slave labor because they were obviously, they had a lot of factories or cotton plantations. And despite the fact that slave trade was abolished in 1821, in reality, as Martin Rodrigo said, there were thousands of slaves still sold in the West Indies after this date. Mm-hmm. And the fact that slavery was abolished by Britain, by the US, that in a way, the Indians took advantage of that situation. Mm, yeah, exactly. And obviously because slave trade was abolished in some places, for example, when a British ship would intercept a Spanish boat from uh, going from Africa to the West Indies, they would free the captives. Martin also explained to you how the kind of slavery process worked. Yeah, in fact, he divided the process into five different parts. The first one would be Africans being captured by other Africans and held captive in Africa. Second part would be those captive Africans would be brought to sites on the African coast where they would be held. Then the third part of the process would be when ship captains will buy these captive Africans and brought them to the West Indies coast, where slave traders will be waiting for them in Cuba, for example. They would be waiting for the ships. And then the last part, the fifth part of the process, would be farm owners, etc., who bought these captive Africans as a slave for labor on sugarcane plantations, cotton plantations, and factories. One of the most Famous names from this era is Antonio Lopez, uh, a slave trader, also a philanthropist, if you can imagine. But while in today's terms, you know, very harshly judged, at the time he was a very rich, influential person, Gerard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marques de Comillas, as he's also known, is one... Like, like a noble title that exactly. he had. Exactly. Yeah. And we could like, on the chain process that we were talking before about how captive Africans become slave. He was one of the slave traders waiting in Cuba for the ships to arrive. He made a big fortune on there. I mean, he was so rich. 
that he had, I was reading, his own resident poet priest, Jacinta Berdaguer. It's not just any poet. He's no, no, very well, he's one of Catalonia's most famous poets ever. Indeed. And, you know, uh, Lopez was able to just keep him on the payroll, you know, to say mass, to write poems, whatever. A part of his legacy was uh, a statue here in Barcelona and a plaza, a square in the city centre named after him. But I suppose like we've seen with Black Lives Matter in the US or uh, with the Edward Colston statue being pulled down in Bristol, uh, there's been this move to kind of decolonize these public spaces and it's happened in this case too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Antonio Lopez Square, which was uh, at the end of Via Layetana, one of the main avenues in Barcelona. It's now named Plaza de Correos because there is a big Correos post office office, uh, building there. And the other side of the square has been named now Plaza de Sidra Diallo. This has been named after, quite deliberately, named after an African migrant. Yeah, exactly. He was originally from Guinea and he passed away in a hospital in Barcelona in 2012 after suffering a heart attack while being held in the migrant detention center here in Barcelona. Yeah, so, uh, you know, quite a contrast there, you know, changing the name of the square from a slave trader to uh, a migrant who, who, who died after, you know, yeah, being held in a, a detention center here. The statue, there was also a statue of Antonio Lopez and that was pulled down as well. Not like in some places where, uh, you know, there was kind of a popular movement that just kind of pulled the thing down. No, the council actually uh, organized and sanctioned that here. That's Antonio Lopez. Other famous Indians, Gerard, we've got Juan Guay. Yeah, Juan Guay. Some people may remember Guay because it's quite a known name linked to Gaudí. Yeah, any, any visitors to Barcelona have probably been to Park Guay. No? Exactly, but Juan Guay is in fact, he is one of the major figures in the industrial revolution here. But his son, Eusebi, Eusebi Guay, he was the one that inherited uh, Juan Guay's fortune and became the main patron to Antonio Gaudí's Parkway, for example. And, for example, one of the other main buildings that Gaudi designed and everyone knows is La Pedrera or mm-hmm. Casa Mila. And this house was funded by Pere Mila Camps, who was a businessman, and his wife, Rosé Segimon, who was the widow of another Indian, Joseph Guardiola, who also was very, very rich. Okay, so when, you know, you're admiring all this beautiful architecture and stuff, you know, worth bearing in mind that a lot of the money and the wealth that paid for this uh, came off the back of the slave trade. Mm-hmm. Um, Juan Guel, you know, there's no documented evidence that he was a slave trader, but he would have employed slave labor in his, in his um, operations in Cuba. One of the things Ana Castevi told me, going back to the architecture, is that without the money from Indians, modernism or Catalan Art Nouveau wouldn't exist nowadays. Another famous name, another name that is known across the world is Bacardi from the rum. Yeah, Facum Bacardi. Bacardi, sorry, I'm saying it wrong. You know, it's not Bacardi and Coke, it's Bacardi and Coke, if we were using the proper Catalan pronunciation. Well, he was born in Sitges, south of Barcelona, so obviously he had a Catalan name. Uh And he went to Cuba, specifically to Santiago de Cuba. And there is when he traded with rum and he brought it to the old continent and to Catalonia. Okay, there we go. Uh, We're going to talk about another aspect of this heritage of Indians that survives to this day, and it's music. Yes, we are talking about Habaneras. Habaneras. So what what are they? Habaneras is a music genre that appeared in Cuba in the 19th century. 
but its origin is a little bit older because it was created in Europe. It was a contradance, as they call it. Right. And as Cuba was a Spanish colony, all those Indians that traveled to Cuba and to the colonies brought the contradance, and it was mixed with local music of indigenous and African origin, and it was created just mainly to be danced, not sung. Okay, okay. But uh, now it is known as a song, Habaneras are songs here, no? Yeah, exactly. And it's not only here in Catalonia, it's also in Cantabria, some parts of Andalusia, for example. And one of the difference between Cantabria and Catalonia's Habaneras is that in Catalonia we tend to have solo singers or small groups of two, three, four, five people, while in Cantabria they have bigger choirs. And what kind of things are the songs about? Well, as you can imagine, Indians were men that travel across the sea with no women. And obviously, so the main topics are the sea, <laughs> women and fishermen. <laughs> Fantastic. OK, I can get the sea and women and fishermen because... Well, because this music was sung in taverns, but also in theatres and at home. And that's how it started being spread out. But obviously fishermen, because those were the ones going to taverns. There's a massive event that celebrates Habaneras that takes place every year on the Catalan coast, isn't there, Gerard? Yeah, in Calella de Palafrugé, since 1966, organizers have been setting up a big stage there in the middle of the beach uh, for singers to sing Habaneras with hundreds of attendees and you would be surprised, but this show is also live broadcasted. Yeah, on... I've, I've found some of them on, on YouTube as well, they're on there. And I mean, it looks like a, it's just an idyllic scene because you've got the little harbour, all the little boats, and, you know, it takes place in July, if I'm not wrong. Is yeah, that right? early July. So, you know, it's this beautiful, long summer evening, and then you've got this music, which is, you know, as we say, this mix of European, American, and African all come back, and now it's in Catalonia. Yeah, but it used to be in the past, now it's in Catalan, but in the past it used to be in Spanish, before the 1960s, when tourism saw the Avaneras as a huge touristic attraction so obviously that's when Avaneras started being performed on stage while before it used to be in taverns in a pub bars. or something yeah uh, well we're going to have some music now and hear from Neus Mar who is one of the very apt name actually Neus Mar no, Mar C no <laughs> anyway uh, she is one of the few solo female singers of Avaneras we caught up with her in Calella and she told us she's been singing Habaneras all her life. Vaig conèixer un vell pastor que ses ovelles... Perquè és un cant que jo he viscut de molt petit a casa. Habaneras are a typical genre, and I started singing them because it's a genre that I've heard since I was a kid. At home we had plenty of cassettes, and my parents took me to listen to Borbo and Peix Fragit, the two main Habanera groups at the time. Com serà el mar, serà blau i gran com diuen. Serà veritat que de nit és com la plata. Mai m'hauria plantejat cantar Havaneres. I wouldn't have ever considered singing Havaneres because there are few female singers or none at all, especially when it comes to soloists. But it was fate, so I went for it. D'una altra contrada has vist el mar 
La raó una mica perquè les dones no cantaven habaneres és perquè... One of the reasons women didn't used to sing habaneras is because women here in Calella, nearby towns, were not very welcome in taverns. It was the social and cultural mentality of the time. Sé que hi ha un Mediterrà... I en el moment en què arriba el turisme... Once tourists start coming, the habaneras are sung on stages and they become more professional. ...de qualitat, encara que sigui un camp popular. Ara Calella, on les ones van i venen al compàs de l'habanera, però jo mai no he vist el mar. That was Neus Mar, and she was singing Mariner de Terra Endins. What does that mean, Gerard? Yeah, that means inland sailor. Inland sailor? Yeah. That's an unusual one, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's, that's artistic. What, that's art, okay, beautiful. That's, that's art. Uh, it was actually composed by Mr. Giuseppe Bastons, who we were just checking out that he is still alive. He's 94 and he's still writing these songs. Uh, Neus is going to be performing for the fourth time at the Cantara Dabaneras on July 2nd in Calella. Yeah, in fact, this year the Cantada is honoring Giuseppe Bastons. He was one of the founders of Peix Fragit Group. Peix Fragit, fried fish. Fried fish, It's a great exactly. name for a group, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's one of the oldest Avaneras groups. And in fact, Neusmar mentioned it in her interview. And another interesting name for a group, this one is more recent. It's Les Anchovetas. Uh, like the anchovies, no? The small anchovies. The little anchovies, okay. Yeah, yeah. And in this case, all singers are women. We saw that Neusmar is one of the few solo female singers, but in this case, it's a group of three women singing Avaneras. Okay, and a beautiful setting, as we said earlier. And actually, if you want to see Gerard enjoying the water up there, we've got a lovely oh. video on catalannews.com as well, when you when you went up. Yeah, we also saw some jellyfish. You saw some jellyfish? Well, you got right in the water. You didn't seem to be too scared of the jellyfish. I have to say, Habanera, when I think of Habanera, I think of Bizet's opera Carmen. Is that just me? I think that's, you know, maybe non-Catalans, that's probably what we're going to think. Um, so it was checking out. That's based on a song by a Basque composer, Sebastián Iradier, who visited Cuba. So it's all, it's all related. And in fact, Sebastián Iradier wrote one of the most popular songs in the recent history, La Paloma. The Dove. No? The dove, yeah. yeah. Or pigeon, if you were being less poetic. Oh, no, the dove. <laughs> nicer, nicer. Dove. Uh, people would say, oh, that's like too much, like you're exaggerating things. But no, in fact, La Paloma, after yesterday from the Beatles, is the most recorded song in history. Ah, well, I did not know that. So we've got this celebration of habaneras. And if there's other ways to enjoy kind of mm, Indian culture more generally. Yeah, well. exactly. In Begur, for example, where we went with Anna Castevi, they celebrate the Fira dels Indians. Er Indians festival. Exactly. Yeah. Every September, early September each year. And people dress up, there's music, there are mojitos as well. Mojitos with the rum, with Bacardi, of course. Exactly. <laughs> It's held in Begur, but there are other fitted Indians elsewhere in Catalonia, but obviously Begur... That's your favourite? That's the one yeah. you, you always go to, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Time now for our Catalan phrase. What's it this week? Well, it's not a Catalan phrase, technically. It's a Catalan song. A habanera, perhaps? Yeah, exactly. 
Colón. El meu avi se'n va anar a Cuba a bordo del català al millor barco de guerra de la flota d'ultramar. Oh, well, I know it's about ships and Cuba and stuff. Translate it for us, then. Yeah, it's a little bit long. It's my grandfather went to Cuba on board the Catala, the best warship in the overseas fleet. Not quite as poetic in English, is it? No, but... I, I recommend everyone to go to Calella to listen to the Habanera. And the song's called? El Mewabi. El Mewabi, my granddad. Yeah, exactly. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for joining me, Gerard. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure. And thanks to everyone who spoke to us this week as well. We're back again next Saturday with another episode, as always, of Filling the Sink. Until then, from me, Lorcan Doherty, and all of us here at Catalan News, bye for now. Adieu.